This is The Space Shot, episode 271, for February 9th, 2018. My conversation with Kelsey Singer and Joel Parker about New Horizons, Pluto, and the Kuiper Belt. I'm John Molnix. Last week, I took a trip to the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado, to talk with Kelsey Singer and Joel Parker about the New Horizons mission. What follows in today's episode is the first part of my conversation with them about their background, New Horizons, and the incredible science that's been sent back by the first spacecraft to visit Pluto. Here's the first part of episode 5 of the Cosmosphere podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Cosmosphere Podcast, Episode 5, Pluto Palooza. I'm your host, John Molnix, and I'm a volunteer here at the Cosmosphere. You can catch me on this podcast and also on my daily podcast, The Space Shot. We would love if you could leave a review on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can help spread the word about the incredible work that's done at the Cosmosphere simply by leaving a review for the podcast. On the first Wednesday of each month, we dive into a new topic. This month, I sat down with Kelsey Singer and Joel Parker to talk about the New Horizons mission to Pluto and beyond. We'll also hear from Carla Stanfield about what's happening at the Cosmosphere this February. I've got one piece of news that you probably have heard of by now, but on the off chance you haven't somehow, SpaceX successfully launched the test flight of their Falcon Heavy rocket on February 6th. If you've yet to see the launch, check out the link in the show notes to see the incredible video. I visited with Joel Parker and Kelsey Singer at the Southwest Research Institute this last month. The setting for our conversation was at the Tombaugh Science Operations Center, which is located in Boulder, Colorado. I hope to have Kelsey and Joel on the podcast again in the future, and want to thank both of them again for coming on the podcast. Now, here's our conversation about New Horizons, Pluto, and beyond into the Kuiper Belt. Today I'm talking with Kelsey Singer and Joel Parker. Thank you guys for joining the podcast. Thank you for inviting us. So we're going to talk a little bit about your background. And for those of you that might not know, what exactly do you guys do here for the New Horizons mission? Well, um, I have several main roles. One of them is doing geology and geophysics research with the data that we get back from the spacecraft. And then the other one is planning for future observations that we're going to make with the spacecraft. Okay, and Joel? And like Kelsey, I wear a few different hats. Uh, I am the uh, project manager for one of the instruments called ALICE. It's an ultraviolet spectrograph. I'm also a uh, co-investigator on the science team, and I'm also an assistant project scientist on it. And they're all just titles, but they all have their specific responsibilities. That's pretty cool. You get a play around with a lot of different stuff. I do. That's good. So what got both of you interested in space and in science? Kelsey, we'll start with you. Um, Well, actually, I I was interested in a lot of subjects when I was a kid. I think, like a lot of kids, I liked 
dinosaurs and planets and all those things. And um, then I just kind of kept doing astronomy. I did uh, research when I was early in my undergrad, and so that definitely got me hooked. Um, and then I did a major in astronomy, and I went on to do planetary science more specifically for my graduate work. For my graduate work, mm -hmm. I worked on the icy moons of Jupiter and Saturn. Okay. And so I did a lot of icy geology. Um, the ice in the outer solar system really acts like rock, so you can apply a lot of the same geological principles that we do on Earth to um, icy places in the outer solar system. And that's what was set me up for working on New Horizons and looking at Pluto, which has an icy surface. I, cool. You know, I think that's a good point. A lot of people in astronomy actually get there from different directions, whether it's geology or biology these days, mm -hmm. chemistry, uh, atmospheric science. And I actually was a stellar astronomer studying massive stars through grad school and my first postdocs before I got pulled into the solar <laughs> system. I never really thought of astronomy as a job. I wanted to be an astronaut, <laughs> you know, and, and in my mind, they were probably all the same thing, right? Um, I also said I wanted to be a doctor because my dad was a doctor, but really I wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> and um, I, I never really thought about being a scientist, but I liked doing, you know, math puzzles when I was a kid and things like that. And, uh, and so I just thought that was cool. And then when I went to college, I did physics because physics was like doing puzzles. Uh, and then I started taking astronomy classes and I realized, oh, this is pretty cool, you know? So I got actually a double physics and astronomy degree in undergrad. And then I was looking at grad schools and I was initially still thinking physics, like plasma physics or something like that. But I really liked the astronomy departments. They were smaller, they were more personal. Um, and astronomy had more of a uh, smaller culture feeling, like you could know everyone in the field. And it was very international too, and I liked that a lot. So I went in to be an astronomy major, uh, got my PhD. Uh, I also, as an undergrad, worked as an intern a few tours uh, at NASA down in Houston. And that kind of satisfied some of my, I want to be an astronaut, or at least close to being an <laughs> astronaut needs as a kid, right? And uh, that, that was great. And that really actually got me involved in uh, wanting to think about the idea of being doing missions. And uh, the shuttle was just starting at that time. I ended up working on some projects that flew on the shuttle. So wow. all of that kind of mushed together. Yeah. Very cool. So I mean, there's, there's lots of different paths to the same destination. I think that's probably good for experiences for everybody because you bring in wealth of knowledge from other disciplines. So, And I think there are a lot of good paths out of the discipline as well. Uh, you don't have to be a professor. You don't have to go to grad school with the only path is a tenure track position or you've failed. Uh, astronomy really has some very broad application. We're all programmers, yeah. you know, and uh, problem solvers. And that can be really applied in a lot of areas outside of astronomy. I totally agree. 
So there's hope for a political science major me then? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Very Absolutely. good. Southwest Research Institute, like how does that just all fit together? Because that's something that I probably not a lot of people know, like how your, your guys' work fits in with NASA, with JP. Like, could you just talk about the organization for that? Sure, I'll, I'll start okay. with that. Go for it, um, the, the PI of New Horizons is Alan Stern, and he has been trying to get this mission launched for decades. He and a small group of Plutophiles uh, knew that getting a mission to Pluto was very important, and it just took a lot of convincing of NASA and funding to get that mission going, and there were a lot of setbacks they were very persistent and they made it happen. And I think now having flown by Pluto, the, the proof is it really was a very valuable thing. So uh, Alan spearheaded it uh, and he's here at the Southwest Research Institute's Boulder office, which has been here for 22 years. So uh, it's been going on for longer than that. But uh, many of us, as we came here, over time, I, I came here at the beginning, 22 years ago, uh, got involved and pulled in to working on New Horizons in one way or another. Yeah, I'm a, kind, not exactly on the opposite end, but I came uh, onto the mission right before it was about to get to Pluto. Okay. I started one year before the encounter um, as a postdoctoral researcher right after I finished my graduate work. And um, it was it was great to be able to jump on right before we got there, but it's also nice getting to see some of the, a little bit of the other side of it now um, to plan the observations and things before we get to our next target, yeah, um, MU69. And so I didn't see any of that <laughs> when, before we got yeah, to Pluto. Yeah, you came in, it's like, hey, we're flying by Pluto, <laughs> yeah, you yeah, want to come? Like, oh, perfect, great, <laughs> I'd love to. So yeah, that was a really great opportunity for me, but it's also nice to see a little bit of the other side too, the, the preparation for, for the encounter. Let's talk a little bit about some of your personal favorite parts of the mission. Like what's something that, you know, it could be something that everybody knows or it could be a smaller, less known discovery, something that just speaks to you guys personally. This is something that people may have seen, but a feature that I'm working on on Pluto is a, a potentially a cryovolcano, which just means that instead of um, having molten rock, um, it potentially was made out of molten ice. Um, and this would be mostly water ice, like we're familiar with on Earth, um, but because most of the outer one-third of Pluto is made out of water ice, a lot of the geology we see on the surface is, is from that ice or from other types of ices. Um, and so it's just really interesting to see all the um, weird features that we get out of these ices on the surface. And is that something that you guys expect to find farther out into the Kuiper Belt then too? Or is that something that's gonna be more unique to Pluto then? That's a good question. We've been speculating about that. There's a few other large bodies um, in the Kuiper Belt. And so there's potential for those bodies as well to have these unique features or even other features that we've never thought of. Yeah, like ice volcanoes. Who would have thought right. a cryo well, Yeah, we, we definitely did not expect to find that. Um, and also it looks like it's somewhat of a younger feature and so that's a mystery that we're still trying to uh, um, interpret is how you could get activity later in Pluto's history because we didn't expect to see that. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. The, the biggest surprise for me, and I'm not a geologist, 
and yet I was very surprised at how geologically active Pluto is and how young some of the surface yeah. is. I, you know, I had in my mind, oh, it's out there in the far reaches of the solar system. It's cold. It's dead. It's been pummeled, <laughs> you know, and it's going to be cratered. And uh, we knew it was covered with ices and that it had these seasons from ground and Hubble-based observations. So we knew it had some differences on the surface, but I personally was not prepared for how active it is. Having this huge plane of nitrogen ice with no craters on it yep. means it's extremely young. Um, and maybe this you know, nitrogen ice is kind of uh, bubbling a little bit in a way. So, you know, it's turning over and it's a very young surface right next to other regions that are cratered and pummeled and old. And the volcanoes. Yeah. There's just so much going on on such a small object. It's really amazing. And really, how do you keep a small, distant body that's not orbiting around a larger body that can kind of uh, gravitationally torque it? How do you keep a body like that active? It's, yeah, we're basically, it's a fun thing to think about because we didn't have any ideas about this before we got there. So now we just have to start from yeah. scratch with like, <laughs> what are the possibilities? And that's basically why we go and do these kind of missions because um, you, that's what you want to find is the things you didn't already know. Yeah. Um, and so it's really changing our view of how these smaller bodies in the outer solar system can operate. Well, and I remember as, as New Horizons approached Pluto, just seeing those pictures each day, like the the higher and higher detail, it just was remarkable as yeah. the spacecraft approached. So I'm sure you guys were probably a little bit giddy as, yeah, was, as that yeah. was happening. Busy and giddy. <laughs> Both. I'm, I'm not sure if I was too busy to be giddy or too, you know. But. I was pretty giddy, I think. <laughs> but yeah, some, one thing I uh, think about from getting the images back kind of some of them we got back one at a time, or we'd get one piece of uh, an image sequence back, and each piece had something different in it. Mm -hmm. And so that mm -hmm. was really interesting because you're like, oh, if we'd only gotten this piece, we'd have no idea this other really weird feature was here. That's right. And so that was also very interesting and cool, and we've only seen about 40% of Pluto well. So you can only imagine what must be yeah. on, on the rest of Pluto. I mean, sure. we were able to get images, you know, Pluto has a, about a six and a half day rotation period. So as we were approaching, we were able to observe all the different sides of Pluto that were illuminated. But only during the closest approach were we able to get those really high resolution images. Yeah. And so and that was mostly on the side opposite of where the moon Charon orbits. And so there's another half we want to see in higher detail. <laughs> yep. And as a member of the public, I definitely want to see that other <laughs> yeah. side too. You mentioned earlier when we were um, first talking about ALICE, the spectrograph. Mm -hmm. That's been on other missions as well, not just New Horizons. That's right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, our goal is to have ALICEs throughout the universe. <laughs> um, ALICE is a small shoebox-sized telescope that's a spectrograph. So what that means is it breaks the light up into a rainbow. 
It just so happens this looks in the ultraviolet, so it makes an ultraviolet rainbow. And uh, every atom and molecule has a unique fingerprint that appears in this spectrum. Uh, so we can look at, for instance, the gas of the atmosphere around Pluto and see what it's made of. We can look at the reflected light off the surface and get an idea there too. It's this same thing is done in the infrared with other instruments that we have as well. It's just in every wavelength region, there are some unique atoms or molecules. So you like to have different instruments looking at these different regions that tell you different things about what you're looking at. So the first Alice that flew was on the mission Rosetta, which flew to and landed on a comet. Alice didn't land on the comet. There was a lander, <laughs> but we also had an orbiter that orbited around for two years. Mm -hmm. And we observed the comet as it turned on and spewed out all its stuff and uh, looked at what the atmosphere of the comet was. We have another ALICE-type instrument that's orbiting around the moon, looking in permanently shadowed regions for water. We have the one on New Horizons. We have ones at and going to Jupiter. Uh, there, it's just great because it's small. Like I said, it's about the size of a shoebox. It uses four to six watts of power, which is less than a nightlight that's to cool. run the whole instrument. Wow. All of these instruments on New Horizons had to be miniaturized in low power because that's the name of the game. Yeah. So Alice has been a really wonderful instrument to work with and has really brought back a lot of interesting data. You know, it's interesting because <clears throat> to develop something for a spacecraft, it has to be space rated. So it's kind of old technology that you know is reliable enough to work in space. So you're taking technology that is, you know, maybe a couple decades yeah. old. There was a nice comparison I saw of someone comparing an iPhone to the New Horizons spacecraft as far as memory is concerned right. and things like that. And, you know, in some respects, it's fairly comparable, uh, but it's space qualified mm -hmm. and it's ultra miniaturized. It has to be low mass because mass is money when you're talking the space business, low power. And so you're taking this technology that may be a few years old, but really tweaking it and miniaturizing it as best you can. And uh, it's very impressive what the engineers Definitely. are able to do. Let's shift gears a little bit to MU69. That's gonna be the next encounter out in the Kuiper Belt. For those of us who don't know exactly what the Kuiper Belt is, where it starts, can you talk a little bit about the Kuiper Belt? Because, I mean, it is way out there. Nothing. I mean, nothing's really ever going to imaged it in this detail before New Horizons. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about MU69. Sure. Um, so the Kuiper Belt really starts past Neptune, and Pluto is kind of the gateway to the Kuiper Belt. And um, we flew by Pluto, and we just kept on going into the rest of the Kuiper Belt. Um, and so this next object that we're going to um, come to is considerably farther away from the sun. Um, so Pluto was at uh, the distance between the Earth and the sun times 33. So it was 33 times farther away from the sun than the Earth is. And this next object is 44 times farther away. So it gives you an idea of just how far out this object is. And it's a smaller object. Um, it's probably about 30 kilometers across. 
Um, it may have more than one kind of lobe on it. It may be more than one object. It may be two objects orbiting each other. Um, we, we are not sure yet. You can, you can think of the Kuiper Belt as kind of the leftover debris from the formation of the solar system. You're able to form all these planets, but all the stuff that didn't quite get to collide and mix together and make a planet, you can think of like a pancake that just kind of went out for some distance further. And there's some discussion about kind of where the edge of this Kuiper Belt is, but you can think of these Kuiper Belt objects as kind of the leftover debris from the solar system, icy bits that were kept in cold storage until we had a chance to take a look at them. And uh, this object that we're flying by next with New Horizons is particularly interesting because it's a part of the Kuiper Belt we call the Cold Classical Kuiper Belt. And these are objects that we think were formed there now. A lot of other objects may have gotten stirred up as the solar system formed, but we think these are pretty much where they originally formed and haven't been modified by too much, by collisions or getting, you know, pushed around by Jupiter or Neptune or something like that. So it's possible that MU69 might be the most pristine object ever visited by a spacecraft. And on that cliffhanger, it's time to end today's episode. Be sure to tune in tomorrow to hear the rest of the interview with Joel Parker and Kelsey Singer. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review on iTunes. If you do that, screenshot it and send it to me at John Molnix pretty much everywhere on the internet, and I'll send you a Space Shot sticker and a little thank you. Also, make sure you hit the subscribe button, that way you don't miss any of the daily episodes. As always, the show notes have more information on today's episode. You can hit me up on Instagram and Twitter. Find me at John Molnix. I'm always up to chat. You can also connect with me on Facebook. Just search The Space Shot or click the link in the show notes and you'll find me. Tomorrow, part two of my conversation with Kelsey Singer and Joel Parker about New Horizons. I'm John Molnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.